Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Now earlier this morning I said that I have three and a half grandchildren. I have four grandchildren. The fourth just hasn't come to meet me yet. And I say that, you all understood what I meant, but just to make sure that no one misunderstands or that anyone who would hear us say it that way would misunderstand I have four. Because we believe that the fruit of the womb is a child and is the Lord's and is all there and a full human being from conception forward. Amen. We believe that. And we'll live by that and we'll make our decisions about this wicked nation's choices on that grounds. Earlier this morning, we also looked at Psalm 128 and saw that happy is the man, and it will go well with him, that fears the Lord and walks in all of his ways. And so we want to look at the ways of God as they apply to families. This message is second in a short little series called Family Planning. And I don't refer to abortion by those uh, uh, birth control or abortion or anything like that by the words family planning. What I mean by family planning, do we have a goal in mind and are we working toward it of having a godly family? That's what I mean by family planning. Seeing what we ought to do, purposing to do it, to have a family that pleases the Lord. That's what we want. Let's go back and look in Genesis at what the Lord did in the very beginning. From Psalm 128, we saw the Lord describe a beautiful picture. And the beautiful picture is a father sitting at the head of his table with his wife there who's been fruitful and blessed by the Lord to be a faithful wife to him and to have given him a number of children. And he sees those children sitting there around the table as well. It is a great blessing of God, and something that everyone in here ought to be looking forward to, if you haven't been there yet, thankful for if you have it now, and if you're at home with the grandmother, having some of those children back from time to time to remember what it was like and to invest in your grandchildren. Because it doesn't end just because the children have moved away. It just means you have a different generation to invest in in a different type of working relationship you will have to show more initiative to be a good grandfather than to be a good father because you're not in the home with them, but it shouldn't end. Genesis chapter 2, I see that God made man from the dust of the earth, and so we have a great big world with one man in it. And that one man was a great man, a noble man, a good man, an intelligent man. But God saw that it was not good for him to be alone, so we read in Genesis 2.18, The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. So God brings a woman to the man, and now we have two people, and they're a little different. One's a man, one's a woman, and God puts them together in marriage that he describes here in the rest of Genesis chapter 2. And he gives us a rule for the future. Verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and they shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now when we come to chapter 4, Adam and Eve, his wife, come together and have Cain, then they have Abel, then they have Seth, 
and they have a whole bunch of daughters and a whole bunch of other sons the Bible doesn't tell us about. You say, how do you know that? Just start thinking about it. One man, God gave him one woman. Those two create a marriage. Those two come together in marriage only. Yes, we're old-fashioned. Aren't you excited about it? Amen. We're very old-fashioned. We're 6,000 years old-fashioned. One man, one woman come together in marriage. They have an intimate relationship in marriage that results in children. Isn't it a wonderful arrangement? Amen. The Lord did that. A man loves his wife. They come together in the same bed. Their warm, physical, loving union results in little children. And those little children grow up. And then they get to leave father and mother, find their wife, and start it all over again. And that's what God's ordained. It's all from God. Right. We, we are not the result of a big bang, any explosion, any evolutionary process. And men didn't sit down in any kind of a social gathering and figure out this way might work. Now they're sitting down in social gatherings and figuring out that it doesn't work. And look what's happening to their world. They want to try everything else but God's way. Two women, two men, shacking up together without marriage, no one caring for the children, giving them to the state, not wanting to have a big family. They're overthrowing the word of God. We don't want to, we don't want to swallow one bit of that. We want to read the word of God and believe every word of it. And this is telling us what God ordained to perpetuate our species and to create a godly seed for himself. Amen. Come to Malachi with me. It's the last book of your Old Testaments. I want you to see that there's a reason why God has ordained things the way that he has. It's because he wants godly families. Right. Therefore, if we fear the Lord, we want godly families and we want to do it his way. Malachi chapter 2, where God is severely rebuking the men of Israel, the men of Judah, for their treachery against their wives. It begins in verse 10, and it runs down to verse 16, but we want to jump into verse 15 because it has what we want for this morning. Malachi 2.15, and did not he make one? That's a rhetorical question. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, did God make one wife for Adam? Yes, God made one wife. Therefore, you have one woman with which to be content and totally satisfied all the days of your life. That's what God ordained. Yet had he the residue of the Spirit. You know, he used some of the Spirit that he had it's like he had a big box of spirit, and he pulled out some for Adam, and he pulled out some for Eve. Could he have made another woman? Yep. Could he have made another 20 women? Another 2,000? So that Adam could have been like a bull with a herd of cows, or a stallion with a herd of mares. Could God have done that? Yep. He didn't do that. That's what this verse is saying. Right. Yet had he the residue of the spirit, he could have made more. And wherefore one? Why did God give Adam only one wife? That he might seek a godly seed. There's the answer. This is the word of God. I believe this verse. You should believe this verse. One man, one woman, for life, no others, and the two of them have children together, and it's a wonderful thing called a family, which is kind of being lost today. 
And we want to revive it, strengthen it, and then we want to have such great families that the world can look and say, whatever they're doing is right. Whatever they're doing is better than what we're doing. Right. And all we're going to answer is, the Lord's had mercy upon us, and we're simply trying to follow the word of God. Amen. That's what we want to do. Verse 15, therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Do you understand how important your marital relationship is? Because for God to get a godly seed, every husband has got to deal faithfully and honestly with his wife and not deal treacherously against them, or he won't get his godly seed. There's a lot in that verse. You don't hear Malachi 2.15 too often about marriage, but it's a great verse. And I hope that you can feel the weight of it right now, all of you men. Because to have the godly family, first of all, starts with a godly marriage. And no treachery there. Those of you who've been treacherous in your marriages, and every man has been to varying degrees, God is merciful. Amen. For the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. Every, every point that you hear me make in this little series on family planning, if you realize I've been wrong in that point and I haven't done that point as well as I should have, or I have just blown that point, do you know what the solution to that is? Is it getting depressed? Is it, is it thinking that, all hope is lost, or is it simply confessing it to God as our brother just prayed, and he will faithfully forgive it right then. Amen. And you can start over and do it right. Right. Amen. I am a living example to every one of you. The, for his mercy endureth forever. Amen. Now, who's going to be hopeless in here this morning? Anybody going to be hopeless in here this morning? Hopelessness is not of the Lord. Right. Hopelessness is from the devil. And he wants to sow it all the time because if he can make you hopeless, you are not fruit-bearing in any aspect of your life and you're just like him because his future is hopeless. Right. Right. And a true believer is filled with hope. Amen. A confident expectation of God's goodness in his life. Right. You all believe that? Good. Good. Malachi 2.15, that's what we want to have. You know, you look in the Bible and you see some great families. I mentioned Abraham, that one little boy they had. They waited a long time for that boy. 25 years from when God said, you're going to have a boy by Sarah, to when they finally had Isaac. And look at from that family came the nation of Israel. From man, one man, one woman. Now, did they try to uh, alter that ordinance of God a little bit? Brought in Hagar. Did that help the situation? It messed up things severely. A lot of domestic unrest because of that little alteration to God's plan. One man, one woman, the two of them, God had picked them. No efforts on their part could improve the situation. They had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had the 12 fathers of Israel. And pretty soon they're in the millions. Now that's seeing your children's children. A great blessing. Do, do you men remember when I spoke to you at a men's meeting about Jonadab, the son of Rechab? There's a whole chapter in Jeremiah 35 about him, and there's a man who started with a wife who had children. They married, had children, and 250 years later, his great-great-great-grandchildren are still keeping the instruction that their great-great-great-grandfather, Jonadab, gave them. Now that's a great family. 
And the Lord, look, the Lord dedicated a whole chapter to that family. It's in the middle of Jeremiah. And if you get tired of reading Jeremiah, you'll never find it. It's Jeremiah 35. The whole chapter is about that great family and God's blessing upon them for being faithful. Their pyramid, their downline, whatever you want to call it, their family tree was glorious in the sight of the Lord. And we want to have family trees like that. Every one of you is capable of starting your own family tree. And it's something you ought to pray for and work for. It's important. Those of you that don't have spouses yet, this should not be hopeless to you. This should fill you with fire to pray and fast more. God will provide a spouse if you pray for one and you seek one. Amen. If you just pray and don't seek, you will not get one. If you just seek and don't pray, you won't get the right one. You can, you can have one by doing both things. And there are plenty of people in this congregation that will help you do one or both. They'll pray with you and they'll help you look, if that's what it takes. I don't want anyone to be hopeless this morning. I want everyone to be filled with hope, filled with excitement at the prospect. Okay, how do we have godly families? We want to look at what the Bible says about the means, and I am not going to make this exhaustive. Uh, back in 1987 and ending in early 88, I did preach it exhaustively, and it took 22 messages to do it. Those tapes are available, and the outline is available. Now, I constructed the outline, but I went back and read the outline yesterday. All the way through 21 pages, single-spaced, of outline material on child training done in 1987. I was blown away. Who in the world did that? Who in the world pulled every conceivable verse of Scripture that had any bearing on child training and organized them together in such a way? Now, uh, you better understand me or else I'm in deep trouble because I'm not boasting at all. All I'm saying is the Lord has been merciful because I look at it and read it almost like a new document. That's a long time ago, 15 years ago. But it's all there. The reason I'm bringing it up, if you want to see a lot of detail, there's a lot of detail there 15 years ago. Godly families. Everything that could be pulled of the Bible, I tried to pull of the Bible. I don't care what James Dobson and Bill Gothard can say. I don't care if you gave them a year together in a monastery. That's where Bill would want to be anyway. But if you had Bill and James together for a year, they're not going to come up with anything to add to this. Amen. Just like Abraham and Sarah, they had 25 years to think about what can we do to improve God's way, and their idea was Hagar. When men try to think of any new way, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We stick to Scripture, and that was rule number one from last week. It's got to be done God's way. I want all of you to have a godly family. I want in years from now for us to be able to see our children's children and maybe their children and peace upon Israel. We've got to do it the Lord's way. There is no substitute. The whole world is clamoring that there are new ideas, new approaches a gentler approach, a different approach, a wiser approach, a more customized approach. No, there isn't. No, there is not. It is in the Word of God. There is no other way. We do it His way. If you stray from walking in His ways, you will not realize the happiness and it going well with you as Psalm 128 described. It's got to be His way. That was the first thing we looked at last Lord's Day. The second thing we looked at 
is the importance of parental examples. Your example in the home is more powerful than your words in the home. Ministers are taught to live the example of the Christian life before their congregation because they can't force it down people's throats or in their ears. They've got to live it. Fathers have to live it rather than trying to indoctrinate children in doing what's right. Live it. Children will grow up to emulate their parents because they come into this world like a little birdie sitting in the nest and because they see mommy flapping her wings, they stretch those little things and flap them themselves. They're copycats. Right. <laughs> now, there are some genetic contributions that we make to our children that give them a deck of cards inside called DNA that includes some of our temperamental dispositions. That's obvious by just meeting different families and their parents than their children. But on the other hand, the other reason those children are so much like their parents is not just the DNA, but the example they've had in the home the whole time. Amen. The example is very powerful in Scripture. Very powerful. You know, we have expressions, he's a chip off the old block. Why? Because a man's sons are going to be very much like the man. The character of the man and the way he reacts to things is going to be very much the way the children react to things. In the Bible, it's as is the mother... So is the daughter. Ezekiel 16.44. That's where the Lord tells us that that little proverb of ours is accurate. And so we want to take heed to our example. And what I really wanted to focus on last week, and I did, so I'm not going to repeat it except to remind you, big hypocrites beget little hypocrites. If, if the love of Jesus Christ in your home is just lukewarm, your children are going to be lukewarm lovers of Jesus Christ. Unless God works a miracle, and he's never promised to work a miracle for parents who are lukewarm Christians. He will have to work a miracle for somebody to be saved out of a lukewarm family and to be on fire for the Lord. Because the example is going to perpetuate itself in the children. I am saying something of crucial importance. Why even go on if you don't get this one very clearly? A godly family is our goal. Well, a godly family is, is a family where the parents and the children together fear God, love Christ, crave truth, and live it right. in godliness and contentment. How do you create that but by the parents doing that? The parents are content. The parents fear God. The parents love Christ. The parents crave truth. If they're doing that consistently... All those little children are going to flap their wings and fly, glide right out of that nest, fearing God, loving Christ, craving truth, and living godly lives. We've got to have our example first. You can't pound it into people. Lead them. Lead them by example. You know, how does a, how does a quarterback of a football team or a sergeant or colonel of a, of a military squad encourages troops to be brave. Does he say, be brave, go die? Or be brave, go take on that better team? Or does he go out in front of them and lead them into it? Amen. You know, we live in a horrible world. Every father in here has to lead his family by being in front of them and doing it before them and doing it with zeal. They'll follow. 
the lesson I'm giving you right now, you can look around in this church, out of this church, and you'll see it. Where the parents are together and fear God and love Jesus Christ, the children tend toward that more than the other children. Where the parents are carnally minded, worldly minded, occupied with their business, selfish, not really loving the Lord. I don't care about coming to church. That doesn't have a thing to do with it. It's really loving the Lord. The children will have a lackadaisical, hypocritical, carnal, compartmentalized idea of religion. We do it by our example. The third thing. There's only one proper authority structure for the home. I mentioned this last Sunday. A dominating father and a supportive mother. A dominating husband and a supportive, adoring, submitting wife. That is the way God set up the family. There isn't an improvement on that. I know, I know lots of people today want to say, well, we're a partnership. Partnerships don't work. Right. Right. Try a partnership in a huddle of a football team. We're all partners here. Well, all 11 of them are going to have a different play that ought to be run next. And in fact, once they've made it around the circle of football players, three of them are going to, have, are going to want to revise their play so that you've got 14 for 11 players. One quarterback tells everybody else in the huddle to shut up. If they've been trained well, they already know that. They don't open their mouths. They are eagerly waiting for the words to drop from his lips, and they will turn around and face their opponent and bury themselves against that opponent in order to do what the quarterback told them to do. It works. And it works in business. When there's one man making decisions, instead of coming out and asking all the peons what they think ought to be done, because then you get a bunch of peon answers, which means they're not worth anything, and you get a whole lot of confusion, and all of a sudden the peons think that they have something up here, when really all they've got is a back to give the one who's got something up there. The reason he's the master is because he has something up there from God. Right. This is the way God set up authority. Right. Now when the master wants to consult some of the brighter peons, he can do that. But to make that an ordinary course of business means they're, they're going to tank. They'll eventually tank. Someone has to be in charge. The buck has to stop with someone. Right. Someone has to be responsible, and God set it up. The father's responsible. Do you know how it works? The wife is to submit to the, to the husband. The Bible tells us that. If there's a problem in the marriage, wives, guess what? And you know I preach it both sides. It's the husband's fault. Because the buck stops with him. God made the family to have a strong authoritarian leader, just like he is a strong authoritarian leader, just like he set up all the governments of men with strong authoritarian leaders. God never set up a government like the United States of America. Right. Never. The United States of America and its division of powers and all of its declaration of independence, there's not a word of it that came out of the Bible. Much of it is contrary to the Bible. I am thankful to live in America. I am thankful that God has been able to use our form of government for the peace of preaching the gospel in this place for 200 years. But it's not because of inherent wisdom in the documents that were drafted by men. It's because God and his providence overrode them. Amen. God never put management or authority in a committee. All you get is the wrangling and the division that we presently have. Give me one man, put him at the apex of power with the fear of the Lord in his mind, 
and dedicated to the care of his people, and he'll be far more efficient, wise, and things are going to get done. And it's not going to cost very much money. And God always set it up that way. Moses was directed by one man. When other men wanted to help him out, they wanted to form a congress to keep him in line. There were 250 of them. They wanted a congress to keep Moses in line. God just opened up the earth and swallowed them all and closed the earth back over them. I've chosen Moses. When it wasn't Moses, it was someone else. Samson, Gideon, Jephthah, Samuel, and then it moved into the, the kings. And it was Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. God's always set it up that way. Okay, the family. How do we read about the family? You know, we start out in Genesis 2.18, the wife is to be the helper of the husband. Genesis 3.16, she is to submit her desires to her husband, and he's to rule over her. Genesis 3.16. And we come all the way through the Bible, and it's the same lesson. Don't try to fudge that. If you try to fudge that in your home, it is going to bear evil consequences in your children. All of your young men are going to hear me preach the truth of God's word, and if they're children of God and they read the Bible, they're going to know what the Bible says, and they're going to know that their father's a wimp, and they're going to know that their mother's an overbearing woman. Do not do it. It is going to come back to haunt you. We do not fudge the word of God. You cannot step. What was that proverb recently? Don't turn neither to the left hand nor to the right hand. Get thy foot out of evil and back on the highway of holiness and the road of righteousness, which is right here in the Bible. Amen. If you look down at the path of your feet and find that you've wanted it all from the Bible, get back on the road. You are going to pay. Be sure your sin will find you out. None of you will escape. There is no amount of praying to uncover unrepentant sin. To cover it. If you want to cover your sins in the past, repent of it right now, and let's go forward God's way. A family has got to have the father in charge. He is the primary leader of the home, and he is the primary teacher of the children. And I am trying to give all of you fathers a ton of material every single day. You've got a proverb, and there's a lot in every one of those proverbs if you want to use that. There's sermon outlines. I'll help you in any way privately. You can all teach your children. It doesn't have to be something dramatic or deep. Just teach them. You be the leader. That continual emphasis that when we get together as a family, mom's quiet, dad talks, dad answers the questions, is awesome. They're just going to think, once they're out there in that house and they're looking around and, and their wife brings home a baby and they realize that someone's been invited to the party, in addition to them and their wife, and there's three of them, that, that husband's going to go, well, I guess it's time for me to start. He's not, he's not even going to have to think about it. I guess it's time for me to be like my father. Wife, get the baby, and let's gather together in the living room. And he sits down, and he may just read a chapter of the Bible. Fantastic. Amen. Fantastic. Right. And you know what I said last Sunday, and I thank you, those of you that came to me and said, thank you for getting a little intense about it when I did this. You wives, don't you ever open your mouths. When the family has come together, you have no more right to speak there than you do in the assembly of God until you are asked for your opinion. And when you are asked for your opinion, the best answer is this. I totally agree 
with what my husband, I, I totally agree with what your father just said, and I think he did an outstanding job, and I'm thankful to be married to a man like him. Yes, that is a godly family. Amen. In the Bible, you will never see Abraham consulting with Sarah to do anything good. Whenever he consulted with Sarah, something bad happened. Go read about it. He got Hagar. Hagar was sent away when she shouldn't have been sent away because Sarah couldn't handle her emotions. Put Abraham in charge, and you've got a good family. And that's why God said in Genesis 18, 19, I know Abraham. He will command his household and his family after him to, to keep the ways of the Lord. Joshua didn't ask his wife, do you think we ought to serve the Lord? The Philippian jailer in the middle of the night didn't say, do you think we ought to be baptized? The Philippian jailer got his family together, and they were baptized. If you need clarification on that point because you're wondering about where regeneration and repentance fit into that, you can see me later. The point is, the Philippian jailer was in charge. Cornelius didn't ask his wife, do you think I ought to pray and fast for God to send me an angel? He just prayed and fasted and God sent an angel. When Peter arrived on the scene, Cornelius said, I have my whole family and all my friends and my servants here. Now tell us what we ought to do. He was in charge. Throughout the Bible, it doesn't matter whether you're Roman in that day, like Cornelius, as an example, or whether you're Abraham and all the men in between, the father is the leader. If you try to corrupt that, modify it, assuage the pain of it, make it a little more contemporary, you're, go you're, gonna, be, you're gonna have trouble. We do not turn to the left hand or the right hand. We don't add to or take away from the word of God. There is not an improvement on how a family can work. It has a dominating father and a supporting wife. What do I mean by dominating? He makes the decisions. He's the leader. He calls the family together. He's the primary teacher. Let the mothers do the things that they're good at. <clears throat> Fixing food in the laundry and other things. Now I'm saying that to be a little rude, but it's because I love everyone. Because there's a division of labor and the primary leader, decision maker and teacher of the home is the husband. And if he wants to consult his wife, he should do it in private. He shouldn't let her get her yapper going in front of the children because it's dysfunctional. The children will grow up not knowing who's supposed to be in charge. They're going to get in here. I'm going to tell them who's in charge because the Bible makes it very clear and they're going to wonder why they come from a home that's not ordered after God's word and it's going to undermine their religion. The wife has got to totally support her husband. What I said last Sunday was I get this question. What if my husband misinterprets a verse when we're in devotions? And I gave you the right answer. Thank God that your husband is teaching your children the Bible and praise him for being one man in a thousand. I will take care of your husband misinterpreting the Bible. God never gave you that responsibility. And for you to even attempt it is to involve yourself in something that's going to crush his spirit and he will likely not want to have devotions again because you are sitting there picking on him. I'll take care of him. The Lord will take care of him. The Bible will take care of him. Who do you think you are? Why don't you just bake an extra batch of cookies for when devotions are over? And I love all of you sisters, but don't get involved in undermining your husbands. You know, some husbands won't have that much trouble with a wife who opens their mouths. They'll take care of it themselves. But there are other husbands that aren't like that. To sit down with the family and to take this role of leadership is hard for them. And when that woman opens her yapper, she is a cruel, cruel 
oppressor in the earth, and she crushes his spirit. All of you women should rejoice that you have a, a, a husband and a father that wants to teach your children. Support him. Sit there and look at him. Like Pat Nick, Nixon used to look at her husband, the president. Adore him. Support him. Praise him. Compliment him in front of the children. And, and if he asked, do you want to add anything? You can say, yes, I would. I'd just like to say that I'm thankful to be married to the best man in the whole world. And thank you for being such a great father. He'll grow right in front of your eyes. He'll strap on Goliath's sword and look for the next enemy. That's what you need to do. This is the word of the Lord from beginning to end. Do I need to give you examples of it? I just did. Abraham, Joshua, the Philippian jailer, Cornelius, and every time the Bible speaks about what's to happen in a home, the man's in charge. And it'll make peace there. When a woman starts thinking and a woman starts making decisions, the decisions automatically are of a much, much lower level of solution. They're pitiful. She's not a decision maker. She gets so emotionally wrapped up and is so weak, she's lucky if she can tie three wires together while a husband's got to be thinking about a hundred. Bake the next batch of cookies. Write your husband a note. Tell your children how wonderful their father is. That's how a woman can build a home in the kind of relationship that I'm describing. I'm not angry with anyone in here. I'm just angry with our whole country that waters this all down. If we lived a few generations ago, I'd hardly, you could blow through this in one sermon every five years. Because right. every woman knew her place and every husband knew his place. You know, if Nebuchadnezzar was issuing decrees from Babylon and they were being executed with the neighbor next door, without a whole long seven-year process of trial, retrial, hung juries, and so forth, there'd be a whole lot of respect for authority. You know, when the king of Persia sits down with his men and says, my wife has just defied me and doesn't want to come to my banquet, what should I do? And they all reason, oh, don't you wish we had a government like that? Now, I believe in a cabinet when it's as, as wise as the cabinet that Persia had. They said, oh, king, if you don't do anything about this, we got to go home to our wives, and every man in this kingdom right down to the lowest servant's got to go home to his wife, and if you have set an example of your wife being able to get away with something like that, the whole nation's going to be torn up, and there's going to be a, a destruction of tranquility in the homes because none of the husbands are going to be able to keep their position. Right. So here's what our advice is. Throw her out. That is a great nation. They may have had problems in other areas, but they didn't have problems in authority. And that's so much closer to the Bible than our present. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to my wife about what we ought to do in the Middle East. Let me talk to my wife about any of the programs of government. Are you kidding? All they want to do is go out and feed every baby and school every child. That's all they can think about. Got to have all these little kids putting puzzles together and, and dancing around the Christmas tree. And so that's where you see all the first ladies going to all the little orphanages because they want to help all the little babies while the whole nation's going to hell in a handbasket because big decisions need to be made. I can't replace a father. No one can replace a father. Right. The father is the most crucial position in every family. The Bible's so plain about this, it says if a wife wants to learn anything, let her go home and ask her husband. The Bible's so plain about this, a husband can annul any vow of his wife, even if it's to worship the Lord. 
You know I've been over these points, but I want to establish them so that we know this is truly the word of God. Because I'm telling you that to veer to the left or to veer to the right, we're going to wander off into the congregation of the dead. You will as a family. I'm not going there. You can go there. You can think you have a better idea. You can get James Dobson's books. You can go to Bill Gothard's seminars. You're going to wind up in the congregation of the dead. Bill Gothard doesn't have a clue. Right. Just read his junk. Just read his garbage about self-esteem being the panacea for the human race. Read James Dobson's cure for the human race. More self-esteem. We just need to build the self-esteem of all these children, then we'll all be happy. If we learn to love, each, love ourselves a little bit more, we could all get along better. That isn't going to help anyone. Right. That's going to ruin your families. That doesn't make a better husband. It doesn't make a better father. It doesn't make a better anything. It ruins them. Jesus wants us to quit loving ourselves and start loving others. The problem when we come home at night is not because we don't love ourselves enough. And that, are you with me? The problem with fathers when they come home at night after the end of a long day is not because they don't love themselves enough. They love themselves too much and they're too tired to want to address the rest of the family because it's a big job. It's a huge job. Every woman that's really taught of the Holy Spirit of God is going to be on her knees every day asking God for strength for her husband. Instead of asking God for strength for herself, she's first of all going to pray for strength for her husband because a good husband in the home is going to make her job easier and that is going to make a happy family in the future. Right. And if every woman was on her knees asking for God for mercy for her husband to build up my man, give him the wisdom, give him the strength, give him the conviction to be the leader that he ought to be. Now that's a family that's going someplace right. because that's the most important job. What if all we did in praying for the authority in our nation was to pray for the mayor of Greenville? How much is that going to help our nation? What's his name, Knox White? Didn't he just get reelected this past week? He gets another term to be mayor of Greenville. But, I mean, we want to go to the top. We want to go where the man that's making the decisions that affects the nation is. We want to pray for him. And every family ought to be praying for their fathers. And a wife ought to be praying for that man that she married to be the strong leader that God intended him to be. If you don't think your husband's a strong enough leader, back off and he'll become that leader. Every man was made to be a leader. He can be a leader. You have just stuck in and you've broken his spirit or you make it so difficult for him to make decisions because you have 13 butts that simply undermine him in front of the family and undermine him in his own mind and heart that he's given up. If every woman would back off, things would get done and they would get done God's way. Now, they may not get done the way that you want them to, but that means they're going to get done better. Enough on that. I know I sound, I sound so hateful. Do you know what I get? I get a few minutes. There's 168 hours in a week, and the whole world is blasting a trumpet opposite of me. All day, all week, and guess what's in every woman's heart? The same trumpet blast that I need to step in. I need to help out. And so I've got a whole lot of enemies. And that's why I said, I told you last Sunday, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 teaches me I'm in warfare. Right. So I've got a few minutes. How should I fight my war? Now, dear sisters, I've been thinking about how your wives throughout the week between Sundays, and you're all good sisters. And so we, I, I leave you this little pool of spittle. And that's ridiculous. Show me Elijah 
David, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ our Lord, the Apostle Paul, or any of them ever wasting their breath like that. If a church needed to be called children and fools, they called them children and fools and babes. They told them they were bewitched and they needed to repent. I've got a few minutes and so it's war. Don't get upset with me. Do you know what my goal is for you? I'll bet my goal is more long-term and more focused on your happiness than yours is. I'll bet you are so wrapped up in what you're going to do today and what's happening in the next 90 days that you can't even think about the future. And see, I don't care about the next 90 days except what I need to do in it because I'm looking at the long run. I'm looking at the long, you know, let's talk right there. The long run. I'm looking five years down the road, ten years down the road. This little event that's going to happen on some Saturday afternoon for 40 minutes or 30 minutes or 20 minutes, whatever it ends up being, that's nothing in comparison to the, the, the big program of the marriage. Right. It's exciting that women show themselves, women give themselves away whenever it comes marriage time. And, it, and it's okay. God made them that way. And as long as they can stay in their little realm and not get outside their box, and that's, that's, that's a kind expression. Getting outside your box is getting outside of where you're comfortable and where you should be operating. It's, it doesn't mean that you belong in a box. <laughs> David, you understand why I'm so... A wedding's approaching. Do you know what the women get all hung up with? Their minds are just cram-packed full of absolute nonsense. Entire nonsense. What kind of flowers are you going to carry? What, are you sure you want blue? Shouldn't they be aqua? All the nonsense. And they drive, it's incredible. You can watch every single little detail. They're just, oh, oh, we've only got 90 days left. How will we ever get this thing accomplished? You know what? I, I wish we would all, as parents, when it comes to this time, sit down with our children and talk about the fear of the Lord. Right. And talk about, listen, you're going, you're going out of my house now. You're going to be on your own. If you cheat and compromise your fear of the Lord, your marriage is going to go down. And pray with those children. That's outside the church. And walk in with it. Who cares? Who cares? It doesn't matter. Because this leads me to my fourth point. The priority of the fear of the Lord over all the details of life. The priority. And I'm leaving an authoritative home where the father's in charge. Now, a father should be thinking ahead. You know, look at that young couple. They look almost as dumb as my wife and I did when we got married. But then you go look at the pictures and you realize, no, they're not. There has been progress made. Sherry and I can say that. When we look at the pictures of us getting married and we look at our children getting married, how did our parents ever allow it? Is how we look at those pictures because we realize now from our vantage point of being in our 40s how foolish we were in our late teens yes the priority of the fear of the lord there's only one thing that really matters for all you young married couples are you going to fear the lord and walk in his ways your whole life because that is how the happiness of a family and it going well with you happens Right, true. Psalm 128 had it all. 
how can we be happily married forever? And how can it go well with us forever? Fear the Lord and walk in his ways. Case ended. It's over. That's the advice. But see, that's what's important. And we get all hung up on, how many classes are you going to take at night, son? Are you going to have enough time for that new little bride of yours? What apartment are you going to live in? Does it have enough room? Does it have two bathrooms or one? Are that, is that two bathrooms or one and a half bathrooms? Do you have the right toaster? You know there's a right way to toast bread. you got to have the right toaster. And so we get all hung up, all hung up on the stuff that doesn't matter at all. Let them make their toast in a frying pan. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because what matters is if they fear God, love him, pray every day, go to bed at night holding each other and not angry, not bitter, not being carnally minded, not being in love with the world. That's what matters. So the fourth thing is the priority upon teaching the fear of the Lord to all of our children. That ought to be the emphasis. The dominant father in the home ought to lead Jesus Christ in Scripture to be the basis for that home. Everything happens, the father should be responding spiritually. If something good happens, the father should respond, let's thank the Lord. Let's, let's grab hands if you grab hands, or let's stand here and just thank the Lord for something that good that's happened to us. That is a faith-based living. That is a faith-based family. That is what the Lord's looking for, faith-based living. Everything we do is by faith. What is faith? Faith believes that God is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If something bad happens, children, let's pray. That example is wonderful, because then throughout life, something good happens, God is praised and thanked. And the family's happy, and they direct their praise in the right direction. Something bad happens, the child's out on his own now. Bad things happen. Bad things happen. And if you've had the right example, you turn to the Lord immediately. Right. See, in the Bible, whenever anything bad happens, they always turn to the Lord. And many times, they'd put on sackcloth and ashes to get real serious, real quick with the Lord. Every movie you watch doesn't do that as a practice. They're looking to what they can do to get themselves out of the fix. And we want to teach our children, we want to have families that are faith-based in their approach to life. They always turn to the Lord. When they have a question, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Always. What does the Bible say about that matter? That is a faith-based home, and that it's so simple. It's just a matter of priorities. Every home has got to be that way. The emphasis has got to be on learning the Word of God, loving the Lord, and going to Him in needs, and thanking Him for His blessings. But we get hung up. Where are you going to go to school? What grades are you getting? You know, do you really worry about what grades your children get? Is it really important to you that your child gets an A? What does it really matter if a little old lady who probably couldn't do any other job is their elementary school teacher and gives them an A? What value is that in comparison to growing in favor with God and men? And we get all hung up. And we put all of our focus on that. I'm telling you, the devil's after us, the world's after us, and this inside does not want to be spiritually minded for every single one of us. 
or it's a, or it's a father that wants his son to be making bucks or it's a father who's athletic and he loves his son playing sports we got to get him out there and watch him play sports it, it ver all these distractions come at us when there ought to be one overriding theme and that is this god pleased with this child of mine is god pleased with our family right. not is are they getting a's in school especially private schools you got to remember this about private schools when you go to a private school the teachers are bound to flatter your children to you because if they don't your children won't be there next year and they won't have a job you just got to understand that about private schools they have a bent toward flattery they have to public schools at least have a big system behind them where they're going to get paid anyway but a little private school where there's a limited number of families and a limited number of students there's a lot of flattery going on who cares about their grade as long as they're learning the basics that's all they need because what really matters before God and what's really going to matter their whole life is do they fear God and do they live a life based on faith? That's what we want. It discourages me and it discourages the Lord and it's obnoxious to him when we get so wrapped up in other things. Do you know he says, let not the mighty man glory in his might, the wise man in his wisdom, or the rich man in his riches. He, those are the only three things that this world has to offer really. And we get all wrapped up in them. There's sports fathers that like the strength. There's educators who want to have their children graduate with the highest level of accomplishment academically. And then there's those that are financially oriented that want bucks. And guess what? The Lord says, none of those things are important to me. Right. What's important to me is that you know me and that you love me and that you understand that I exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Amen. For in these things I delight. I don't delight in might, wisdom, or riches. I delight in these things. And so we teach our family that way. We're always emphasizing those things. What's right? What's loving kind towards someone else? What's godly? We're always being pulled. Everyone in here, including the speaker, gets pulled in different directions so as not to have a very spiritually minded home. And what I'm saying is let's lay that aside and make our priorities right. You know, your children's grades, your children's dietary habits, they're incredibly insignificant compared to fearing God. Incredibly insignificant. Who cares what they eat? They're going to be just as healthy. Look at this nation. This nation is gorging itself on fast food for the last 40 years, and they're all doing great. They're bigger, stronger, and faster than the earth has ever seen before. And yes, they live just as long and maybe a little bit longer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're all stuffing themselves with hormone-fed beef every meal and sucking down sugar and eating all that bad stuff. White bread, you go to McDonald's, they haven't served me a burger yet on whole wheat bread. And I'm, oh, don't, don't write me any emails about the nutritional value of a McDonald's meal, please. That is not my point. My point is, we worry about things like that and forget this. This is the most important thing. What if we have a child and they're 20 pounds overweight, but they fear God and they love the Lord with all of their heart? What's better? The one that's 20 pounds less and is just a carnally minded Christian or the one that's 20 pounds more and loves the word of God and loves Jesus Christ and walks in the spirit? Hope. Oh, don't you know we get all messed up? All we want to do is 
listen, child, I'm going to draw a little plan for you. I want you to run five miles this morning. I want you to lift weights tonight. I want you to run six miles. I'm only going to give you 2,000 calories a day. We're going to get you whipped down into shape. And see, we'll put efforts into all sorts of these things. It's a temptation that we all face. Family planning is to make the emphasis on the Lord God himself, upon the word of God, upon Jesus Christ, their Savior, and walking in the Spirit. Mothers, make sure you don't get all upset about family meals and try to make sure that everyone's at a family meal unless it's subordinate to how much interest you show in the Lord's Supper. If you're going to get all bent out of shape about your children being at your supper, how about getting bent out of shape? Are they all ready for the Lord's Supper? Do you know how different that is from our mindset? Instead of calling all your children, and I love all my children to come home, instead of calling all your children and wanting them to come home, making that an emphasis, how about calling your children and asking, are you ready for the Lord's Supper? Because that supper is far more important than any supper I'll ever have for you. That's a godly woman. That's how she always thinks. That's a godly father. That's how they always think. The Lord is more important than their little family olive plants around the table. Godly families. What if your son ends up digging ditches? What if he digs ditches for a living? He's able to make a living, but he counts Jesus Christ in heaven as treasure. Amen. We, we get our priorities messed up. There's clear goals given in the word of God, and there's a whole long list, and I can't run over them now, but just think of a couple. I've already mentioned one, growing in favor with God and men. Is that your key for your children? They're growing in favor with God, God, and men. Not just the little lady who has to flatter them to keep your check your tuition check coming in, but I mean real people. Where, where people are really measured by some criteria of established accomplishment. Employers, neighbors, peers. How do, how do they recognize your children? Are they growing in favor with God and men? A good name is rather to be chosen than much gold and silver. Are your do your children have a great name? Are they well-rounded? Do they bearing all of the fruit of the Spirit, love? Are they loving? Are they joyful? Are they peaceful? As we read in Galatians 5. You know, that's what the Bible tells us. When you read through the Bible, the whole, how many verses in the Bible on nutrition that, mother, that parents ought to be concerned about the nutrition of their children? How many verses? None. How about their grades in school? None. How about the fruit of the Spirit? Many. How about righteousness? Hundreds. How about holiness? Hundreds. That's the emphasis. So we got to have that emphasis to end up with the product, the result that God wants. Right. It's been said the family that prays together stays together. Now that's a little trite saying, but the point is true. All of our families should be praying together families. Now I've already mentioned that if we're faith-based, whenever there's a need, we pray. Whenever there's a blessing, we thank the Lord. Whenever there's a question, we go to the Bible. But a family that prays together is a faith-based family, and the Bible teaches us that. Every, everything that happens in our lives 
should be answered spiritually with the Lord. Is this a time to thank and praise him? Or is this a time to seek his help and deliverance? And the children ought to participate. It ought to be family-wide. Dad's out of a job, the whole family prays. Dad gets a job, the whole family thanks the Lord. Dad gets a raise, the father comes home and shares a little bit of that largesse with the family. So they're with, with thanks to God. So that the whole family is participating in a faith-based approach to life. One more point, you're well-versed on it for this morning. Well, I'll give you a couple, but I'll give them to you quickly. Husbands and wives had better be in total agreement. For a godly family to result, husbands and wives must be in total agreement. And every wise man will have taken care of all this before he gets married. Because that's one of the reasons, that's one of the bases on which he's going to get married. He's found a woman that wants to raise a family the way that God said. It's not really something that you sit down and consult each other. If you're going to sit down and consult with a woman who's never had a baby about how she thinks a family ought to be raised, you are you're really creating problems up front. That doesn't mean it cannot be discussed, but it means that the man ought to be grounded enough here because, see, it's already settled. How much of, their, how much of it is there still left for debate? And what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? The Lord's already settled it. And so you want to look for that woman described in Proverbs 31.30 that fears the Lord. Above all else, she fears the Lord. She wants to do what the Bible says. She wants to walk in his ways. But it ought to be settled before you get married that we are going to serve the Lord. You know, my father proposed to my mother with this question. Will you serve the Lord with me for the rest of your life? And that's how we all ought to look at our marriages. All of us men are leading about a sister. All of you sisters are being led about by a brother. We're, ju we're just two saved saints that have decided to live together in what God calls marriage, and we're going to stay together, but it's on that basis that we're going to serve the Lord and it's settled. What the Bible says, that's what we're going to do. Husbands and wives must be in total agreement. Before marriage, a man ought to find out if his wife fears the Lord or not, so he knows he's getting a good wife that's going to want to do it God's way. After marriage, it's a man's responsibility to keep his wife fearing the Lord and doing it God's way. Because she's going to want to rebel, just like he's going to want to rebel, but God put the burden of keeping the marriage together on the word of God with the man. And so it takes constant follow-up. No, we're not going down that road. We, I made a commitment a long time ago that I'd follow the Lord, and this road is what we're going to go down. Don't you remember? And if she doesn't remember, then you help her remember that this is the road we're going to go down, and this is why we're going to go down it. And that's what a husband has to do. And it's not always very pleasant, because they pout, and they cry, and they get cold for a day, or a week, or a month, and they try to punish, and they, try to, they want to do it their way. But a woman that fears the Lord won't do that. And if she does that a little bit, then you just take her hands a little more firmly and look her in the eye and be the leader of that home and say, this is the way we're going to do it, and we have to be united, and we both want to be united with God's word. We want to follow God exactly as he describes it in the Bible. Because as soon as the children sniff a little bit of the division in that family, in that marriage that you're, where you're allowing your wife to differ from you, 
They're going to smell that and they're going to take advantage of that. And they're going to know that your marriage doesn't follow the Bible. And so you've undermined your own example before them. Having children and what you're going to do with the children is not the wife's plan, it's the father's plan. As for me and my house, this is my plan. My wife is the object of the plan, not the subject of the planning. My wife isn't doing the planning, I'm doing the planning, and as for me and my house, this is the way we're going. That was Joshua, that was Abraham, and that's every good man. This is what we're going to do. God gave the man the greater capacity to be able to make the, the wise and intelligent decisions, especially grounded in the word of God, and he's not nearly so easily deceived as the woman was throughout the Bible and in all of our experience. Easily messed up with sentimental and emotional thinking. This is where we're going. The man says it and the family follows behind, and they need to be totally in agreement. And if there needs to be some discussion in private, it should be in private, and the husband should bring the wife into agreement. Once in a while, the husband's going to hear something from his wife and say, oh, what an idiot. I was wrong. I'm sorry. We're, we're, we are going to go down this road right here. I don't know what I, what I was thinking. Everybody's going to make mistakes like that. You solve them that quickly, and you go on down that road. And that doesn't undermine your authority one whit. Listen, a five-year-old child can correct a father once in a while. That doesn't give the woman any more leave than it gives the five-year-old child to tell its father what to do. Every leader is able to say, I was wrong, this is where we're going. Husbands and wives ought to be in total agreement, and one thing they ought to be in total agreement about is the courting and marriage process for their children. And this is my last point now. You know, you've been well taught in this. I've taught it before. Marriage in the Lord only, as the Bible defines it. We don't believe in dating in this church in the sense that you just let, you know, the world, the world thinks they're conservative if you force a child to wait until they're 16. That is very, very conservative today if you keep your children at home until they're 16 and then allow them to have unchaperoned dates. An unchaperoned date is simply torment and torture to see how many minutes they can last before they commit fornication. If it doesn't result in torment and t torture, you have a problem with your children. You say, that's not very spiritually minded. Spiritually minded children ought to be able to go out together at 16, 18, 20, or 22 and not have a problem. Really? That's not the way the Bible addresses issues like that. It says to make no provision for the flesh because God put overwhelming desires in the flesh for certain things, and so we don't put ourselves in predicaments where that overwhelming urge can attack us. But that, enough about that. We've, we've talked about that before, and I don't really want to get into that too much. But listen, if you're going to have a godly family, you've got to control your children so that they marry in the Lord. And in the Lord is defined by the Bible. Someone who is sold out and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and, do, and, and obeying the Bible. Someone who fears God and walks in his ways. It's not enough to be a church member, even in this church. That's not good enough. To be a church member in this church is just that your sins are private enough that they're not publicly revealed so you can make it to the Lord's table with the rest of us. It doesn't mean that you're a fit candidate for marriage to my children. And by when I say that, I'm speaking for all of you. All of you are able to say that. Just because your child's a church member doesn't make them good enough. 
what we want to see, and see, this puts pressure on all of us to raise godly, Christ-loving, Scripture-obeying, walking-in-His-ways children. And so the husband and wife have to be together as a team, and from day one they have to tell those children, no dating, you're only going to marry in the Lord. And if it's even questionable, they're not in the Lord. We're going to help you find them. And you talk, about, you talk that way from their earliest days, they don't even know any difference. You just keep them thinking that way. And you keep them away from children of the opposite sex that are not fears of God. And that sometimes can be in our own congregation. Because you only want them around children that are spiritually minded and truly fear the Lord and show that fear of the Lord. And so you work together as we're talking about having a godly family. This is family planning to have a godly family. Husband and wives talk. We are committed. Our children are going to marry only in the Lord. They're going to be spiritually minded, dedicated, committed Christians. You know, today, if you say to the average Christian, do you believe in marriage in the Lord? Yeah. Yeah. My Baptist son married a Catholic girl. She loves the Lord. My Methodist daughter married a Mormon, a Mormon boy. He's a great guy. You ought to meet him. He's just a charmer. Precious. So's the devil. Right. The devil's quite a charmer. That's not nearly good enough. We want marriage in the Lord, or your family is going to do this and disintegrate into nothingness. It'll just end up being a, a bunch of carnal garbage out here someday, two or three generations down from you. Just a mess. You want to marry up with spiritual character as high as you can get on the ladder of spiritual character. Right. You, want to, you, want to, you want to beg God to bring you spouses that are way up that spiritual ladder of character. Because the higher you can marry, character-wise, the more you're helping your family for the future. Right. If you compromise, and see, it's got to be a plan. From day one, you sit around the table, and you talk about godly people versus carnal people. You talk about gracious people versus odious people. And you get all of that established until it's instinctive to them. You talk about it. We're going to marry in the Lord. We, I want you to have the best wife. Here's what the best wife looks like. She fears God more than anything else. And you talk about it incessantly, all the time. And there's always examples. There's examples of girls and there's examples of married women that you want and you don't want. I'm thankful for our delis that we had for the last 10 years. Because every day we got Social Studies 101, otherwise known as premarital counseling. A yapper comes through the line. Her husband's on a leash behind her. He doesn't say a word. He reaches toward a cookie, and she says, no, you can't have that. Don't you remember what the doctor said? And we all watch that, and we just smile. Hey, guys, I would say to my sons, would you like to wake up with that every morning? So we had social studies 101. You know, and you see him in the store, don't you? The woman leading her husband around on a leash. He's just following meekly behind her. She wants them. She pays for everything. She does everything. We don't want that. So we would look at that. We would learn that. We would see the characteristics that indicate such a woman. And we would talk about it. Our dinner tables are not silence. Our dinner tables, tables have always been filled with chatter on social studies. Does my oldest daughter remember coming home 
from uh, a print shop in this city and talking about all the women that she worked with that had been divorced and remarried three or four times. That, that is wonderful family discussion about what in the world happened to cause all those divorces and remarriages in a young woman. And so we would talk about it. And listen, it's a family plan. It is a family plan. From the first day that you, when you're given that child, you should start praying and thinking, I want that child to find as close to the perfect spouse as I can. And so you work toward it. You conspire. You plan. You pray. You work. You do everything you can to make that happen. You don't allow free dating. You don't allow them to pick. They want to go out with so-and-so. You control all that. And if you've taught them that up front, they'll accept that, especially if they know dad always talk. I know dad wants me to have a good wife because every wife that he picks out or every girl that he picks out, as I've been growing up and said, that would make a good wife. You know what? When I took a second look at her, she was awesome. You know, I had a store. It did help. And, you know, women would come through that were class acts. Every word that came out of their mouths was gracious. Whether they knew the Lord or not, didn't know. Class, noble, kind, friendly, gracious, proper at all times. Guys, look at that. What do you think? You know, they're just blown away. You're standing at a register after you've had the Gestapo woman come through with her husband, and then you get a woman like that. It's just incredible. They just put such an, they have such an aura of goodness about them. You know, we say, there goes such a good person. They are such a good person. Well, you look for things like that, and you teach your children to look for things like that, and the child knows, I know my dad wants the very best for me. I know my dad wants a good-looking wife. I know he wants a spiritual wife. I know he wants a domestic wife. I know what his plan is. I know how he and my mom get along. I know how he and my mom are happy. I know he wants that for me. And so the child trusts the parent. This is family planning about their future marriage, courting and marriage. You can have a plan for each child. It should be regularly discussed. And you should be building efforts and expectations for those children. There's lots of examples around. And little children can get excited about daddy giving passing or flunking grades to different kinds of women or girls. Because daddy knows best. Because daddy's been married. And daddy knows what kind of a woman will make a good wife. And so the children can grow up to believe that, and so you have a plan. Children should have no idea of marrying foolishly or for infatuation. Right. It shouldn't even cross their mind. You should laugh at their idea of love. A teenager's idea of love is lust. L-U-S-T. Right. is not half lust and half love. It is lust. Love is work and it's a commandment, and it's something you have to do when you're married. And if you've got it before marriage, it tends toward lust, not love. Now the Lord uses a little bit of that lust to get people together. Yes, he does. Because as long as you're lusting after someone of the opposite sex that fears God, and you're, you're wanting them, desiring them, that's what the word lust means, you're coveting to be married to them, you haven't done anything ungodly. And so it's a propelling force that gets people together. But good parents only let that even get started. Not even a spark of it. Not even a, I smell smoke, honey. Not even that of it 
until it's directed towards someone that fears God and meets all their criteria. Otherwise, you clamp it off tight and nail the coffin shut. You block the door because you can't let it get started. I have warned parents for as long as I've been a pastor. The greatest danger in young relationships is not fornication. Fornication can be easily repented of, easily caught, and taken care of in comparison to this emotional entrapment by someone of the opposite sex. Then you can no longer reason with that child. They'll run away on you. They'll climb out a window. They'll do anything to get with that person that they're emotionally in love with. And so to protect against that, which can, emotional infatuation can occur even if they're not out with a person. They can be stewing in their room because they want to be out with that person. And the way you've got to protect that is you cannot even let it get started. If you let it get started, it is almost impossible to stop it because your reasoning with them is totally contrary to a power in them of emotional response that is overwhelming. Once you let emotion in, reason goes out the window. Fathers should be greatly involved in picking, in knowing each child and what kind of a spouse would be good for each child. And if you let their attraction for each other, which I'm going to call lust, the Bible says that lust is good in certain respects. Right. And as long as it's towards someone that's not married and you want to marry them, and that's all you think about, there's not a thing in the world wrong with it. Hey, the Bible tells us to covet earnestly the best gifts. A young man ought to covet a good wife. There's nothing wrong with that. But every father ought to be seriously involved. Abraham was a great father, one that God commended in Genesis 18, because in Genesis 24, like I told you last Lord's Day, he sent his servant to find a way for Isaac that would meet his criteria, which was high, and there wasn't anyone local to do it. So he had to look elsewhere. But he made the efforts to go elsewhere to find that spouse. And he prayed to God, and he committed the, he committed the Lord to the action that that servant would bring back a wife for Isaac. And sure enough, he did. Part of this process of controlling the courting and marrying of your children is creating a family environment that spouses want to marry into. You want to have a happy family, a godly family. Now think, if, you, if your goal is to get a godly, spiritually-minded person that follows the Bible and is high on the ladder of character, you want them to marry into your family. Well, that person's going to have their criteria too, right? Don't, don't get so narrow-minded that all you can think about is your criteria. Think about their criteria. They're going to be looking at and judging your family. Do I want to be a member of that family? Well, then you've got to give them what they're looking for. And see, if they're God-fearers, then you want to give them what they're looking for. You want to be a God-fearing, happy family. And others will want to marry into it. And others that happen to be from families that aren't very happy, where the, the, husband and the, the husband and the wife don't get along like they ought to, they're going to even be happier to join your family because there's going to be peace to get away from a family where there's pain, anger, depression, bitterness, discouragement, criticism, negativity, and carnally mindedness. So you want to give the goal that the other person, the other spouse would want. You've got to create that. That's part of family planning. We want to create a family where others feel comfortable with us 
And we want it to be a godly family where they want to participate in a godly family. Because listen, let's get right down to it. Family planning includes what the real purpose of, what the real result of marriage is, you marry families. You don't just marry the person that you're living with, you're marrying a family. And so your family had better be desirable, pleasant, cheerful, upbeat, functional. No one's going to want to marry it. You know, an overbearing woman is incredibly horrifying to a young man who's thinking ahead, oh no, I'm going to have to deal with that the rest of my life. Or a harsh and overbearing man, harsh, critical, crude. What man, growing up, even if the daughter is desirable, is want to go have to deal with that all the time? And so you're cutting off prospective spouses. You know, you're, you're snipping this off, trying to help your face. You're hurting yourself. It's all part of a plan. Lord, we want godly generations proceeding from our marriage, like John and Dab, like Abraham, like Joshua. Part of our plan is to find godly spouses for each of our children. Help us to that end. We want to have a family that attracts them. We want to teach our children to measure them. We want to control all their activities with the opposite sex so they're limited only to those girls that we approve or guys. There's no natural or spiritual right for you to expect others to want to marry your children. You can't expect that. You've got to win that. You can't force desire to marry your children, but you can win it. And so we want to win it. Overbearing fathers or odious mothers can drive away potential suitors or, or spouses because they don't, want, they don't want to get involved with that family because they see too much pain coming in the future. So all, do you know what this kind of burden it puts on all of us? We better have functional homes, happy homes, godly homes, so that anyone looking at our family and thinking about one of our children says, I'd like to be part of that family. And it's part of the plan, and you're thinking about it all the time. Whenever any of the young children in the church come over to your house, you say, I, I smell you. I smell you trying to seduce little children. Yeah, you just may. When children come over to your house, you ought to have a happy home, a godly home, husband and wife getting along together well, cheerful, good times, no bitterness. Those little children will grow up thinking, you know, that's a neat family. That's a neat home. I wouldn't mind being part of that family. And that help, that, this is family planning. Right. You say, you sound like it's a conspiracy. It is. We're conspiring together with the Lord to build godly families for the future. Right. And may the Lord Jesus Christ be praised with the results. Amen.